Now that Saul has been established as Israel's king, Samuel takes the opportunity to defend himself before issuing a strong rebuke against the entire nation. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel chapter 12. As we move into chapter 12, the entirety of the chapter. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walketh before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose ass have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith, and I will restore it to you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, and Badan, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelt safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold, the king whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. Now therefore... Stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, 
And turn ye not aside, for then shall ye go after vain things, which cannot profit, nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Luke writing to us in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, beginning in verse 29 through verse 31. By the same Spirit, the Apostle records this. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, in a bold attempt to gather the men of Jabesh, Gilead, and the rest of the Israelite tribes, Saul threatened them, as we learned last week, with his wrath by sending a message of doom. And he does this by reenacting one of the most brutal events in Israel's history when the Levite was forced, this, this Levite priest was forced to cut his own ravaged and murdered wife into 12 pieces, sending them to each of the 12 tribes so as to galvanize them, to unify them against the murderous tribe of the sons of Belial of Benjamin. Now Saul, knowing the fear and cowardly disposition of Israel at this point, this was a wickedly brilliant maneuver to galvanize the men of Benjamin and the people of Israel to his, to his warring affair against Nahash. Now, the men of Gabesh Gilead, as we remember, were so intimidated by the serpent named Nahash that they were willing to federate with him by allowing him to pluck out their eyes and proclaim themselves slaves. And that's what happens when God's people lose faith, when they begin to fear man and not God, and when they begin to, to obey man and not God, they then succumb to that fear of man and they say, we'll do anything even to the point of plucking out our eyes and making us slaves. And what we can know when this happens, as it has happened and still is happening in our own country, is that God has already taken out his sword of chastisement against his apostate people and he has brought down the hammer of his wrath, making them blind. Even some of the ministers, blind leaders of the blind. Now these men were fearing Saul more than Nahash and because they feared Saul more than Nahash they rallied against Nahash and of course Saul was the victor and then in the eyes of all the people Saul then was no longer just simply a military captain but now they see him as the undisputed king of Israel and we read that in chapter 11 verse 15. And all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal and they sacrificed sacrifices. And by having made Saul their king, they rejoiced greatly. Now this action, this action of making Saul their king, was in spite of the warning that Samuel gave them concerning a king that was patterned after the pagan nations. Now again, if you remember, 
It was not so much that Israel wanted a king. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they wanted a pagan king. They wanted a pagan type of a king that would be a military king in order to be a military warrior to go against their enemies. They were just worried about that. They really weren't worried so much about whether he was pagan or not. They wanted someone and they would have taken anyone, but this pagan king was the one they really wanted because they wanted to pattern him after their enemies so that they would be like their enemies on a even even plane of resistance and even plane of warfare. And so Samuel, seeing this, very grieved, he reminds them again that he only agreed to give them this king, this type of a king, simply because, yes, they demanded it, but God had said, give it to them. This is part of their chastisement. We see this in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, Samuel now, after the victory of Saul, approaches Israel once again and says this, Behold, and again and again, he wants their attention, so he calls upon them and he says, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice, you have your king, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that you said unto me, and I have made a king over you. I did what you wanted. Now what he is now about to do, because he knows what the future holds, he is now about to distance himself from that decision because he knows where it's going to lead. He told him as much. You want this kind of a king? I want no part of it. So he begins by reminding the people of his fidelity. Notice, it's curious. He says, I want to show you what you have denied and what you have gotten. So now, I told you what you are going to get. Now I want to tell you what you've lost. So he begins by reminding the people of his fidelity, his personal fidelity, and his long years of ministry without so much as a blotch upon him of any kind whatsoever. Notice how he begins. He says, Behold, the king walked before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. A long train of witness. Behold, he says it again. Open your eyes, listen to me here. Behold, verse 3, here I am. In other words, look upon me. Here I am. Witness against me before Yahweh and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken? Have I taken anyone's oxen? Or whose ass have I taken? Or who have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it. Now, understand what he's saying. He's telling them he did none of those things, but the king that they're going to choose, and which they already have chosen, are going to do all of these things. He's saying, I didn't do any of these things, insinuating the king that you're getting is going to do all of these things. The Reverend V. Phillips Long adds this. He says, Samuel wishes to defend his own record as Israel's leader before instructing both the people and the king about how the new leader can succeed. So he establishes here a number of things. Firstly, he says that he's not taken any bribe from the people in his entire life. He has not deceived or defrauded them, any of his brethren, ever. And the people knew him since he was a child. Now, he might he might be implying, even here, this idea that I'm gold now and you know me from a child. That might be insinuating of the miraculous blessing that his mother, who had been barren, Hannah, had. 
So he's pointing back to this incredible, astonishing event where God blesses his mother and brings young Samuel into the world to be trained by Eli the priest. He might also be applying that he was consecrated not only as a priest, but as a Nazarite warfaring priest in the same way that Samson was consecrated. So he is continuing the great line of the judges, those victorious judges, right into Israel's history. And this would be a curious insinuation since it was the judge Samson, not the king Samson, who had acted as the military antagonist against the Philistines. He wasn't a king, he was a judge. And if Israel was thinking properly, they would have recognized that, oh, it was not King Samson, nor should it be King Samuel that thwarted the Philistines, but Judge Samson and then Judge Samuel, not King Saul. But they weren't putting this all together. Samuel was supposed to continue the legacy of Samson, and yet the people called for a pagan model of a warfaring captain who they now have made king. Samuel also makes mention of his sons. Also very curious. Because his sons were reprobate children. Now, of course, Samuel placed them in positions of being judges in areas which wouldn't matter because he knew who they were. He was not like Eli who did not reprimand his sons because then he would have been found guilty and the Lord does not condemn him for any of this as he does Eli. So he does, however, here, make mention of his sons which had walked among the people. And this is very interesting because they did not walk in his father's footsteps. They were ungodly men and yet Samuel makes mention of them. Why? Well, perhaps because he dealt with them properly. Unlike Eli with his reprobate sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And he's saying, look, you know what I did for my sons and they still rebelled against me. I did the right thing in raising my family and they still rebelled. So I am not guilty as Eli. And so when he says, behold, my sons are with you, he might also be saying to the people that since you have rejected the righteous Samuel, you can have my sons. You want a pagan king? Have some pagan judges. You're rejecting me? Fine. Here's what you're going to get in my stead. And this seems to be a chastening remark. Samuel's entire discourse was to justify himself before God and the people as a righteous judge worthy of honor and respect, which the people did not respect. But once he was out of the picture, which he is now leaving the theater, once he's out of the picture, the people would be forced to deal with Saul all by themselves and Samuel's unrighteous sons. Now, it was obvious that the people did not respect Samuel, because if they did, they would have heeded his warning against establishing a pagan ruler. And so it goes, as Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Samuel's design in this monologue is to impress upon the people the gravity of the situation in which they are facing by rejecting God and replacing the judge, the righteous judge, with an unrighteous king. So he's charging the people of rejecting God first and foremost. And with this monologue, Samuel demands a verdict as to what his crime was, if any. So he's asking the people to either bring, bring about a covenant lawsuit against him, 
or find him innocent of any wrongdoing, which would actually indict them for wrongdoing. They had no biblical grounds to ask for Saul and not have Samuel. So this would be an indictment. If they found him guiltless, they would be indicting themselves. There was no just cause. He's demanding that the people consider a covenant lawsuit against him. And yet, by asking the people to bring a covenant lawsuit against him, he's actually bringing a covenant lawsuit against them. Because if they find him innocent, Israel would be found guilty. And so, the people, after hearing Samuel's request to either convict him or justify him, the people find him innocent. In verse 4, and they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. You are totally innocent. Now consider the reversal. Samuel began as the defendant. Now he turns the tables and he now acts as the prosecutor. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. They condemn themselves. Reverend Long comments again, he says, having taken the stand and successfully elicited from the people a verdict of innocent, Samuel turns from defense to prosecution and to the second stage of his argument. Samuel begins to parade before the people their own history of godly leadership beginning with Moses and Aaron. And he begins in verse 6. And Samuel said unto the people, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron. Isn't that an interesting twist? Isn't that an interesting twist? He finds the people guilty. Maybe they even recognize that they were now in trouble because they had nothing ought against Samuel. But instead of continuing in that vein and saying, Thou art the man, thou art the nation, he begins to go back into history. And he says, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Notice the insinuation. Notice what he's saying. Moses and Aaron were chosen by God. It is the covenant God that advanced Moses and Aaron. And it is as if Samuel was saying Moses and Aaron were called directly by God. They were not called by the people. They were called by God. In other words, he is saying, in a paraphrase, Whereas you called your leader without the counsel of God and without the counsel of Samuel. In fact, you rebelled against the counsel of God and the counsel of Samuel when I warned you of the type of king you would get and you still wanted that king. And that king was not directly called by God for your good. It was called directly by God for your chastisement. Now before going any further, Samuel makes absolutely certain that the people are actually on trial before God by using the phrase, stand still that I may reason with you. Those are words of the Lord. Those are the words that God uses throughout Scripture. Stand still and let me reason with you. Stand still and see the power of God. Stand still and see the deliverance of God. Notice now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord... Notice what he's doing. He's not saying, my acts, I'm not, what am I? I'm just a mouthpiece for God. But because you rebelled against God, not me, I'm going to show you what you're rebelling against. 
which he did to you and to your fathers. And and here is the, the declaration of God's covenant lawsuit against them. It's the very same phrase, this idea of stand still. The very same phrase where God reasons with sinners in light of their sin and in light of God's saving mercy on condition, and this is so important, on condition of repentance, service, obedience, and fidelity. Notice what he says. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Notice, that's exactly what, what Samuel is saying. Stand still so I may reason with you. Your sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be like red crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient. Notice the condition. If ye be willing and obedient. There's a condition here. Ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. These are the same words, almost verbatim, that Samuel spoke years before Isaiah penned these words. For the mouth of the Lord had spoken. And so Samuel goes through the list of faithful leaders in, in this monologue, in this judgment, especially including the judges that had delivered their forefathers, including himself, in the catalog of the righteous. But notice how he weaves into history lessons that of Israel's sins, of rebellion, and the consequences of their sins. This is what he does. He's going to weave into this history lesson. And this is what it is. Samuel is giving a providential history lesson. Within this covenant lawsuit argument, he's giving a history lesson. And notice what he says. When Jacob was coming to Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, notice they forgot the Lord, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, kept them in the host of Hazor, and in the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And this is, and this is why it's so important for the human race, simply because it's God's history of dealing with man to understand history. History is so important to understand from God's vantage point because it catalogs man's sin and rebellion against God as well as God's mercy through their repentance, faith, and obedience. History is so important. You know, today in our America, we say, well, you know, we need the higher math. And yeah, we do. We need the higher math. We need all kinds of math. We need science. We need physics. We need the other thing. Yeah. What about history? Well, history is a bunch of dates. It's just a bunch of places and people and things, and it's boring. Well, it's boring because it has God taken out of the equation. So what Samuel is teaching here is, I'm going to parade before you the way God has orchestrated your history. And this is why history is so important for the human race. Because it's God's history. It's God's history of how he deals with man. It is God's tool of teaching. To pervert, change, or ignore history is to ignore God's work in history. And that is exactly what the American indoctrination institution of the government school system is trying to do. To neuter history. To make it unimportant. And my question has always been, as they are doing this, As they are doing this, do they honestly think that God will not judge accordingly? So what is even more, what is even more astonishing is not so much of the wicked trying to remove God from the history by perverting history, 
but the so-called Christian parents who are perfectly comfortable with the perversion of history. They don't mind the change of history because they too have fallen into the snare of forgetfulness just like Israel in the days of Samuel. Israel had quickly forgotten the stipulation of Deuteronomy 28 as to the consequences which God would bring upon a nation when they forget God. And to forget history is to forget God. Job tells us that even though God may raise up a nation into global prominence, and you think about our nation, our nation was the pinnacle of every nation. The example at one point in its history of coming out of nothing, coming out of rubble, with its warts, and with its glory, coming into national and international global prominence, America was blessed by God. But Job tells us that even though God may raise up a nation into global prominence, as he has done in America, he can just as easily take it down if they forget him. Notice what he says, Job chapter 12, verse 23. He increaseth the nations and destroyeth them. He enlarges the nations and straighteneth them again. In other words, the condition is, when they forget me, I'll destroy them. When they forget me, I will destroy them. Have you heard the word of the Lord? This is the word of God, the creator of the universe, the one who has orchestrated America, the beautiful, the land of the the free and the home of the brave. You forget God. Yeah, you may forget God in the secular realm, but to forget God, the God of Scripture, in the church of Jesus Christ? Are we not on the brink? Israel was in the crosshairs of God's displeasure, and Samuel was going to make sure that they knew it. Would to God that the preachers of this nation would make sure that the people knew that the American experiment was now in the crosshairs of God's displeasure. The problem with most of American Christianity is they do not recognize the hand of God's wrath. They do not understand that there is a battle in the way of which they are woefully unprepared to wage because they just want everything nice. They think, oh, it's so nice. Let's just tell everybody that Jesus loves them and everybody say, oh, you know, I love Jesus too. And they come into this kumbaya moment as if that's going to do it. No, that's not what Samuel is telling them. He's telling them that you are in trouble with God. Even though Samuel is grieved over Israel's rejection of God, he goes through the lessons of history, highlighting how Israel redeemed herself from total destruction by simply acknowledging their sin and calling upon God for deliverance. It's not rocket science. It's not a hard thing, unless your pride is so great and so tremendous that it's almost impossible to humble yourself before the hand of the living God. Notice what he says in verse 10. And they, your fathers, cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jeroboam. So this is what happens. You see, when a nation remembers God, when, when a nation remembers God, when the church remembers God, and they call upon God, and they, they confess before God, he sends them a Jeroboam. He sends them a Jephthah, a Bedin, a Samuel. He sends them a Samson. He sends them a deliverer. Now consider the importance of history in redeeming a nation. Notice what Samuel doesn't do. 
he doesn't whitewash the evils of Israel. While America seeks to whitewash the evils of its history, or highlight the evils of its history, all of its failures, Samuel uses history, both the evils and the good, in order to correct those failures and point Israel to a way back. He condemns the evil so that he might correct the failures. Not so that he would oppress Israel by their failures, but he would raise up Israel to condemn their own failures. He uses them to show the error of their ways and how they are to regain their footing in right behavior before God. And this is why it's so dangerous to whitewash America's history. We need to be reminded of all of her warts and wickedness so that we might repent and redeem ourselves by following after the Lord and His ways. Now, what what Israel was being told to do was exactly that. Samuel was saying to them, recognize your error and turn by doing good. A change of relationship warrants a change, rather, a change, a change of relationship warrants a review of the past. Not a make-believe past, but the real past. If you want to change in relationship in your America's future, you need to review the past and correct the problems. Without the knowledge of the past, we cannot proceed properly with our future. Up until this point in Samuel's reproof, he had been looking back into the past of Israel's history. He then now, notice, He then, after he lays out the truth of their history, he then shifts gears and he points to a very recent event, the battle against Nahash, the serpent king. So he's bringing that history to bear upon their present time. History is not just something that we say, oh, oh, that happened then, that has no effect on us. No, 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 no. That has much of effect on us. Our history is what brings us here today. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, Nay. Notice, you, you knew that you should have called upon God, but you didn't. You said, No, we want a king, when the Lord was your king. So Samuel here reminds them of their rejection of God, when in fact it was God who was their king, who also won the battle for them by granting victory to Saul. So Samuel then tells Israel that because they wanted a pagan king, God was going to give them exactly what they wanted as a chastisement. So at this point, Samuel is perhaps alluding to the Israeli wilderness wanderings when the people were dissatisfied with God's manna, requesting instead meat until they vomited it out of their mouths. And that's why he says, Now therefore behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. One might think... I guess maybe if it was me, or maybe if it was you, that that would have been the end of the monologue. You're on your own, have a nice time, you're done. But that's not what he does. He will not leave, by the moving of God in his soul, this people in despair. He will not end there. He is now going to present to them a way back a way out of the situation which they have fallen into by their own folly, even their own sin, Samuel's going to step up and say, now I'm going to tell you how to get out of this mess. Remember, he lays out the mess first. So Samuel, acting as God's merciful evangelist, tells Israel this, verse 14, If, if ye will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then... There's an if and a then, shall both ye and also the king 
this this wicked, prideful soul that reigneth over you, continue following the Lord your God. So if you continue following the Lord your God, notice, notice, fear the Lord, serve Him, obey His voice, and don't rebel. Four things. And this was such a merciful concession. All the people had to do was fear God, serve Him, obey Him, don't rebel against Him. All they had to do was that. And not only would the people be blessed, but they would have a king that would be blessed of God. Perhaps God would then give him a new heart rather than another heart. Of course, this was on the condition that if they obeyed by honoring, and worshiping and fearing him always as the Lord, Master and Protector, then they would be blessed. Samuel, however, is quick to add the negative side because there's always got to be a negative side and that's how we should deal with our kids. That's how we deal with our children. Child, if you do this, everything will be great. But if you do the other thing, if you rebel, not only will not everything be great, here's what's going to happen to you. I doubt that you parents are doing this. Have a list. Obey, and you get all these great blessings. You get hugs from mommy. You get your food cooked. You don't, you know, you get all these wonderful things. Maybe you get, maybe you get an extra quarter in your allowance or whatever. But if you disobey, spankings in your room, no toys, no video games, no TV. Down, 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 down. That's what God does. Actually, it's one third, two thirds. You get one third blessings, two thirds cursings. I had a woman in New York Church that had this big poster board on her kitchen wall and that's exactly what was there. You obey mommy, here's what you get. You you, you disobey and here's what I'm going to do to you. And it worked. At least they knew what was going to happen to them when they obeyed or disobeyed. It can't be left up to you or them to think, gee, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's try this out. So you try it out. Say, oh, that's number three. I'm, I'm in big trouble now. So this is how we need to deal with our children, just like Samuel is dealing with Israel. So he's now quick to add the negative side of the gospel message. But, he says, verse 15, If ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. So they can go back and they could see, oh, that's how God dealt with our fathers. The Reverend Long again comments, he says, Fearing the Lord was the fundamental requirement for rightly relating to Yahweh. To fear the Lord is to give Him weight and honor and to commit to serving Him and obeying obeying him. Recently I was watching a series on on television. It's a, like a, a western kind of thing and it was down in the backwoods of Kentucky. And one brother says to the other brother, "Aren't you afraid of that that Dixie Mafia group there?" She goes, ah, "I'm not afraid of those guys." He goes, "Yeah, well, what about mama? Are you afraid of mama?" And the guy went white. <laughs> and he was in his late 30s. He went white. Yeah, I'm afraid of mama. Well, when you see the movie, you know why. (laughs) Fearing the Lord is fundamental. Moms, your sons need to fear you. And I don't say pops. I don't say dads. Fathers, you will be feared naturally. But sons, sons manipulate moms. They need to fear you. When you speak, it's a commandment. And if they fear you, they will love you. And they will fear you because you love them. You cannot be their friend. If you try to be your child's friend, 
you will become you will become something that is unpleasant in God's sight. Remember what the scripture says. We are not to be the ch- friends, we are not to be the friends of our children, we are to be the parents of our children. So Samuel then provides an added element to bolster Israel's faith. Notice he's on now the quest to encourage them. He tells them that God will show them some of his power in order to prove to them. Now notice why he's doing this. He's doing this because they're so weak in faith. They need to see something. So God is going to stoop to this point where he, and he didn't have to do this, where he will show his power so that he would provide for them a, an outlet to, to trust him. And that he, by showing his power, they would see, oh, God can do this, and God can do that. He can provide for us. He can protect us from every enemy that threatens us. We don't need a king. We have God. I hope we don't have to see a sign. I hope that our faith is strong enough. Now, while this is a gracious act on God's part, it's an amazing act, actually, on God's part, it's an indication that Israel still has a trust problem. They still needed to see an act of God in order to be convinced of his word of promise. We should just be able to read his word of promise and be convinced. That should be enough. And so Samuel explains that God can provide the necessary rain for Israel's crops, and of course through the thunder and the lightning he could he could thwart any of his enemies. And this was a direct indictment against Israel for worshipping and trusting Balaam and Ashtaroth, who is the god of weather, the god of war and the god of weather. So Instead of trusting in false gods or vanity, trust in the true God. And here's what he could do. He could bring rain, he could bring thunder, he could bring all of these things. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And then he asks the question, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel calls upon the Lord And the Lord sends thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. But they needed to see a sign. They were still still on the fence with their faith. So God is now reestablishing himself in the mind of the Israelites as the God who is in control of both the weather and the outcome of war. And his action was a token of his displeasure with Israel as much as it was a testimony that he could bring rain and confound the enemies of Israel. Should not his word have been taken As truth, yes. He told Israel that he would protect them. He told Israel that he would provide for them. He told us that he would, in his promises, protect us and provide for us. Will we not take him at his word or do we not have to see it? See, Israel had to see it. They were lacking faith. We need not to be faithless. In a way, at this point, God is actually contending with the false gods, even as Elijah did at a later date. The Reverend Baxendale explains this way, he says, the miracle which followed Samuel's words was a confirmation of their truth. The conception which Israel now had of a king was not God's conception and their desire to have a king like the nations was a rejection of their divine and invisible king, hence the token of his displeasure. In later days, this same nation rejected this divine king, the Lord Jesus when he came to them in human flesh. 
Now, consider Israel's response. Verse 18 and following. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. It's very similar to what happened at Sinai. They were frightened because of the fire and the thunder and the trumpets and the voices upon Mount Sinai. And they too were greatly afraid and asked Moses to pray for them, to act as an intercessor. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not, for we have aided unto all our sins this evil in asking us a king. Now they were terrified. Terrified as to the power of God and the greatness of their sin, the people now look to Samuel as their mediator in the same way that the people look to Moses to mediate between them and God. And again, for a brief moment, Israel owns their sin and repents. And this is so important. Samuel responds by confirming the gravity of their sin, of Israel's rebellion. You know, when someone says to us, or when a child says to us, and this is important for you parents, when a child comes and says, Mommy, I'm sorry. Do not say, oh, that's okay. Please, follow the word of God for God's sake, for your sake, for your child's sake. Do not say, oh, don't worry, sweetheart, that's okay. It's not okay. You tell the child, you have sinned, you have done this and this and this, but we can pray and ask God's forgiveness. It's not about you being forgiving doesn't matter about you forgiving. It's okay. It's not okay. And if it's okay, then they'll just do it again. And they'll do it again. And they'll do it again. You see, what's happened in America is that people have been assassinating their unborn children and the courts kept saying, oh, don't worry, it's okay. It's not okay. And one day, the blood of those innocent children will be paraded before this nation And this nation must then own her sin. So don't let me, and don't God forbid, let God hear you ever tell your child if they have done a wicked thing that you said to them, oh, don't worry, honey, it's okay. You are Christian mothers and fathers. You are not moralists. You are not pagans. You are Christians. You follow the word of God. You follow what the scriptures teach. You follow by example. You don't make it up as you go along. And you know something? I talk to parents someday and I tell them straight on. And I love them. They're all nice people and everything. But I tell them, I say, you don't know what the heck you're doing. You have no idea what you're doing. You're flying by the seat of your pants. See, yeah, but this is my way. Have it your way. Have it your way. And then remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, but thy be done. We're looking for a generation of warriors, God-fearing Samuels, Samsons, Jephthahs, Barracks, Debras, Jails. And they will not come about, they will not be matured properly unless we do it. And we need to do it by example. So Samuel confirms the gravity of Israel's rebellion in verse 20, along with the admonition that they must walk a straight and narrow path in obedience before God, in serving Him only, and not the gods of the pagans. So Samuel says unto them, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness. Notice, he says, Don't worry, fear not, you have done all this wickedness. But what did he have in the back of his mind? The crucified Christ. 
He knew that there would be forgiveness if they truly repented. And he had in the back of his mind the crucified Christ. And so he says, fear not. Even as the angel of the Lord said to the shepherds that night, that faithful night, fear not. Ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and turn ye not aside, for then shall ye go after vain things, if you turn aside, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. Now, the, the, the key takeaway here is that Israel is not told that they are guiltless like so many therapists do, or so many moms and dads do. Israel's problem was not environmental, it was not educational, medical, uh, accidental, hormonal, or mental, it was moral. Israel had a sin problem. But they needed to own it. And that's the one thing. They needed to own their sin. They couldn't make excuses. They couldn't say, oh, brother Johnny broke the lamp. Oh, my mother helped, my mother did that. Oh, I had a bad family life. Or my, my, you know, Jody Foster was talking in my ear and, and then I shot those people. If you're old enough, you remember what that means. Israel had a sin problem. They needed to own their sin and Samuel needed to set it forth before them. So he's not only, he, so Samuel is, is, is not only showing them their sin, he wants them to own their sin. And he is only able to confirm God's promise when they honestly own their sin and are honestly, genuinely sorrowing over it. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Notice why. It is because of God's great namesake. He will have a witness because that pleased the Lord to make you his people. He wants you to He wants you to own your sin and ask for forgiveness. And notice that's why God is granting mercy for his great name's sake. And that's what Ezekiel reminds Israel of, this very fact that they are only granted mercy because the Lord has promised mercy to those that fear him, repent of their sins, and serve him only by forsaking all other gods and worldly wickedness. He says this in Ezekiel 36.21. He says, For I had pity for my holy name's sake, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whether they went. For my sake, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgment and do them. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourself. In other words, you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations because you're owning your sin. And so in the face of genuine repentance, Samuel is able then to offer genuine forgiveness. So notice what Samuel does. He does more than just offer God's forgiveness. He acts as a mediator. He says that he's going to be a mediator in very much the same way as Jesus acts as our praying mediator. He says, notice, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So you know, when mom and dad, your child is sinning against God and sinning against you and sinning against himself and you parade his sins, make sure he owns his sin, has genuine repentance, you are then not only to say, I forgive you, you are to say, well, God forgives you, let's pray, let's pray. So we, we find, and you know, hey, look, discipline and discipleship of a child is a lot of work. It doesn't run all by itself. So before you have one, two, three, four, five, six children, you know, the, the work piles up. So you start with the first one, you get them on board, and everything is easier. But if that first one is a wild card, you, you're going to have some trouble. But notice, you sit and you pray with them. Yeah, you, do you spank them? Yeah, when you need to spank them, you spank them and you sit down and you pray with them. 
You act as their praying mediator. And then notice what Samuel says. Notice what Samuel says. I just love this. I just love this. This is, this is it. This is parental guidance 101. But I will teach you the good in the right way. You can't just tell your kid, don't do it again. Tell him what to do instead. Tell him to put off the bad behavior and put on the good. I will teach you. Notice what he's doing. They hated this man. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted a king. They spurned his counsel, his warnings. And yet, he says, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to teach you. Instead of saying, like I probably would have done, I probably would have done this, sorry, you don't want my counsel, you're on your own. He's a better man than all of us. He acts as Israel's teacher. He acts as their guide. What a great type of Christ. And it is here that we see Jesus, our Lord, in his role as prophetic teacher, judge, Nazarite priest, and king. Speaking of the Lord Christ, the Hebrew writer explains in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 5, But this man, because he continueth forever, speaking of the Lord, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For Samuel not to pray for Israel was sin. So he prayed and he taught them, he counseled them. Finally, Samuel offers one last warning in order to ensure that Israel knows what is at stake if they stray from honoring God in faith and obedience. He says, but if ye shall do, verse 25, but if ye shall do, still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. So he leaves Israel standing at a crossroad whether they will fear the Lord and obey Him or whether they will regress into trusting the man Saul who represents, as we have already learned, the Adamic nature, the Adamic reprobate state and every other thing that draws the people away into destruction. And so Samuel clearly states, if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed. Notice, ye shall, ye shall, both ye and your king. Now, what's important to remember is that even though God has promised deliverance, Israel will still have to face the consequences of their sin. This wasn't saying to them, oh, uh, everything's okay now, everything would be great. No, you still made a mistake. You still sinned. You still chose the king, Saul. Israel will still have to face the consequences of their sin, at least for a season, until David becomes the deliverer king to deliver Israel out of all her difficulties. Next, we are introduced to Saul's son, Jonathan, and the dire situation of facing the Philistines without the necessary weapons of war. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.